Welcome to the Spotlight series presented by Surviving Society. In these episodes, Chantel and Tiso take a step back and hand over hosting to academics, activists and grassroots community organisations. These are a range of episodes positioned locally and globally to tell the stories that need to be heard. Enjoy. We are here in Port Elizabeth, South Africa at Nelson Mandela University. As you would have gathered, I am not Tiso, nor am I Chantel. I'm going to try and be as capable as those exceptional two people. I'm Jason Arde, and I have a guest who I'm surely going to ask to introduce themselves. What we're going to be talking about is kind of racism in the South African context, in particular in alignment to society and higher education. So, I have a wonderful guest. Nova has kindly offered her time. She's also an award winner, so I'll allow her to um, do the introductions, and then we'll proceed from there. Nova. Thanks so much, Jason. My name is Nobubele Puza. I am a research assistant at the Chair for Critical Studies in Higher Education Transformation at Nelson Mandela University in Sani, Port Elizabeth, South Africa. I'm studying towards a PhD in blackness, I suppose. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm not. I am a master's student, I'm going to complete my master's this year. I am also a teaching assistant slash lecturer for first year sociology, introduction to sociology and sociology of development, third year level. And yeah, the award that I got, someone thought I was brilliant enough in research and I have great research capabilities. So they gave me the Albertina Sisulu Fellowship from the Department of Science and Innovation. Fantastic, Nobu. See, I told you I couldn't have done it any more justice than that, so I'm glad Nobu did it. I'm really interested to know about your work. So if you just kind of briefly talk through your work, how it relates to, I guess, the really complex political context in in a South African contextual type of way, that would be great. Basically, here at the Chair for Critical Studies in Higher Education Transformation, better known as Krishet, I mainly do contributions towards uh, in the broad areas of gender and social justice movements. And social justice movements in South Africa have been quite intersectional in as much as um, you see the political context of South Africa still pushes or the way that we framed then the discourse around it that the highest point of analysis for black people should be race and class and then gender becomes secondary or added as a subsection of gender, of, of race and and class so uh, my job is to in essence you know broadly excavate then the idea of gender and elevate its uh, level of analysis within universities um, to the same level as race and to the same level of class as class as well um, or intersectionally where we can because you must remember even the idea of intersectionality in South Africa is still being thought of as something quite western whereas sometimes the language of what you're trying to do can be western yeah. but the practice of it can be done ages ago for sure um which is the same as well for feminist theories and feminist thoughts where you find that black south africans still say oh no you're using feminist theories which are western and so on um disregarding the fact that south africans black south african women have been feminist yeah just never termed it that yeah, yeah for sure so that is my work i work on anti-gender based violence as well at the university uh, which is part of broader context of gender transformation and gender equity and that's basically it I'm really intrigued to know and I suppose from a UK perspective we have to negotiate racism in the academy in a variance of ways through racial microaggressions through hyper surveillance through a questioning of capabilities mm-hmm. and as I've mentioned often this is kind of exacerbated for women of colour in particular black women so one of the things that I'm kind of just really interested in is to kind of understand that and I'm sure you know the UK kind of audience would be in terms of a South African context what does that look like and why is it so much more complicated 
Mm. There's obviously the obvious notion of the kind of historical past of apartheid, but what are the other factors that kind of go into this as well? Because I feel like you have a really crazy situation where something like 8 to 10% of the population in South Africa is white, the rest is, is black or people of colour or ethnic minorities, mm. but in terms of how that proliferates into university space, it's still very few in number. Yeah. So explain that context, because for me, that's, that's just fascinating. Yeah. Look, I think at the core of the complexities of uh, studying racism in higher education here in South Africa, or even having to, or being able to put your finger on what's going on, is understanding the history behind why each university was created. Because certain universities carry the burdens of those histories. For example, Nelson Mandela University was created for... Oh, you know, the suspicions of the Pudor Bond and all yeah. of that. But um, it was created then for uh, white African excellence. Mm. So Afrikaans men and women were sent to UPE, University of Port mm. Elizabeth at the time, to excel and sort of be at the same level or create then this, this cohort mm. of intellectual engineering or whatever it yeah. is, Afrikaans yeah. uh, people to then stand next to mm or at least in the same spotlight as mm. English, British English right. uh, white people. So we had then that, and then the bringing in then of black people in UPE, I mean, this Bird Street, Bird Street campus where we are currently doing mm. this uh, particular podcast was for black people. Right. And being on this campus, you had to write a note and uh, motivate why you want to share the space with white Afrikaans men and women. Wow. Yeah. So universities were created with that intention in mind. And something that hasn't been done in South Africa is that post-1994, we haven't discussed why the university exists so that we can put our finger on why it still feels racist now. So you've got then in universities this inheritance of those academics that come from apartheid. And for some reason, you know, obviously we know that apartheid never left because the people who were thinking racist thoughts and people who were carrying out racism in South Africa, they never left as yeah. well. So here they are now sitting as professors, full qualified professors. Um, they were sitting and they're lecturing as well. So you see then that reproduction yeah. of that same kind of um, ideologies that started, that started the university or the principles that the university was founded on. So each university has then that particular history. But... The more we find black people, you know, you find black enclaves in the universities mm. and you find all black people clustered either in social sciences or you find all black people clustered in political uh, studies or uh, public admin and yeah. so on. So we've got our spaces at black people, but even there, there's still this, this texture of racism. But now, because there's a black face mm. behind the door or inside the office where a white person was, mm. you can't really put your finger on it. Right. And that's why it becomes so complicated to discuss um, racism in higher education here. Mm. Even if we look at the ranking of universities in South Africa, yes, a lot of the universities that are still ranked number two, number one, have now incorporated black academics into their broader structure. Would Stellenbosch be a good example of Stellenbosch, that? UCT, yeah. Wits University, UJ, mm is also yeah. one that's coming up um, and I mean UJ a lot of people will point out UJ as okay UJ has a lot of black people but where are those could black could you just explain academics? for um, mm -hmm. the UK listeners uh, what UJ is University of Johannesburg yeah. and University of Johannesburg is one uh, there's a in 1994 towards 2002 2003 yeah. the um, South African government decided that there must be universities that come together to create yeah. one university. Right. Um, so U University of Johannesburg was one of them and they brought together then what they have now is the Soweto campus. Mm. Um, there's a campus in uh, Melville, I think, as well, yeah. something like that. 
as a university that came together, a merged university, it was supposed to then be almost a hub of transformation. Right. And that's where you saw, you know, a lot of black academics going there, transformation, the picture of beautiful black children mm. walking in and out of UJ. Almost that symbolism of diversity. Mm. But what, what we didn't do then when it comes to those merged universities is that at the center was always that university that had the most white people. Yeah. For example, here at Nelson Mandela University, UPE had the most white people. Mm. And then when the university merged with then Vista University, which was a black university, yeah. Birch Street Campus, which was a black university, every single thing that is good about this university still exists mm. at where UPE was now called South Campus. Right. So we've renamed it, we've given it a different name, we've given it a different face. It still carries every single thing that was racist about the university. Yeah. You've just asked someone else to click the button of yes and no. So in, in the UK currently, we have a situation where, you know, thinking of a blueprint for an aspiring young black academic is almost near impossible. So mm-hmm. for white academics, it's very, it, it'd be, you know, because of how the system is constructed in the UK, you could give someone in that pipeline a blueprint of what they need to do to become an academic. Mm. For a black student in the UK or a student of colour, it's near impossible because they're going to have to traverse so many different aspects of racism, discrimination, getting into the ivory tower, into the kind of whiteness of the academy, just generally speaking, full stop. In South Africa, an aspiring young black academic, how did they do it? How did they transcend from that kind of barrier of whiteness? How did they penetrate that to end up in the academy in South Africa? Yeah. Look, on the one hand, there's policies that have really helped, you know, to try and boost, I suppose, black representation within higher education. And we've got um, some really strong policies in South Africa, I must admit, you know, that speak about gender 50-50 and certain departments that are pushed to have a certain percentage of black um, students and so on. So we're seeing then slowly and surely that the face of the student is changing. Mm -hmm. And hopefully as the face of the student changes more and more, becoming blacker and blacker, the face of the academic also will change. Mm. But what I am personally experiencing, and obviously I can only speak uh, partly from a lived experience, is that for an emerging uh, black academic, one, you need to first excel before they even give you a foot at the door, in, in the door. Mm. Before you can even sit at the table and say that you can count yourself as someone who is someone who can give knowledge or someone who yeah. can present in a classroom. You need to be excellent at what you do. Whereas white people don't have to, they're allowed to be as mediocre as they want. Yeah. Um, so there's that one aspect as well. One of the things that has, has helped us here as well is that the more we try and change the curriculum, the more you try and introduce new ways of thinking and new modes then of analysis that are black-centered, we then exclude strategically white people because you can never be in a discussion of blackness mm-hmm. if we're going to be talking about authentic yeah. um, South African experiences. So indigenous knowledge system, indigenous knowledge production, thinking almost from the margins, from, yeah. from black perspectives has really helped as well to try and create a niche or a space mm. for black academics. Um, and I think obviously we can't do that everywhere, but just as an example, um, if you think about here, the language policies and yeah. wanting to bring in Isikosa, which is yeah. the, the language of, not the language of Eastern Cape, but the language of a particular tribe in Eastern yeah. Cape is very dominant here. So the more we want to bring in code switching, for yeah. example, in my classes, I'm allowed to speak in Kosa every time I want. Wow. I'm allowed to bring in a glossary of Kosa words that speak. And do white Afrikaner students have I to engage with I do have white that? students and they must engage. Right, okay. They must engage. Um, 
a couple of them, you know, ask here and there. I didn't quite get the full sentence and so mm. on. But the glossary is there. You mm. look on the website, you see the glossary, you know the closer terms, you look at the glossary, you know the English terms. Mm. And in class, I'm allowed to use any of those words interchangeably. Yeah. And that is, that, that's the benefit of the policies in South mm. Africa. I think a lot of people are still nervous about doing that because there's still an authority that English commands that... Um, if you if you speak in a native language, if you speak in Isiklosa in your class, it takes away a certain level of intellectual and um, a level of your intellect. It takes away maybe, for example, you know, people will think, oh no, you're not smart enough and so on, because we've associated English with excellence. Mm -hmm. uh, we've associated English with smart people. Um, but that's those are the things, those are the ways we push the boundaries. And the more we push the boundaries, then we make space for other academics. Yeah. Now I don't have to be as excellent. I just need to be someone who understands the curriculum. Yeah. In the UK, when we talk about issues around race, there's got almost like a hierarchy of intersectionality. And it always gets superseded by this idea of, you know, race is something but actually it's about class, you know, mm. particularly the white working class. Mm. So in terms of segueing into that, one of the things that I've become really interested in, kind of understanding the South African context from afar and being here now, is this idea, the plight of the white Africana, mm. that somehow their heritage, their heritage is getting lost or subsumed within this oh, idea of gosh. blackness. What are your thoughts on that? Is there any legitimacy to that claim? What do you think? Oh, my goodness. You know... <laughs> One of the things that uh, white people in this country have not done is sit and mourn the loss of power. Mm. And, you know, I always think about um, a real funeral, like an actual funeral. And I think about, and I'm thinking about like real, not real, eh? not that other funerals are not real, yeah. but um, a, a, a black Kosa funeral yeah. where there is wailing yeah. and crying and people are losing themselves, mourning every, yeah, every the African loss. funeral you can think of. Yes, yeah. every African funeral there's that. Mm. And sometimes I wish white Africans people could have that moment mm. to mourn truly the loss of power because that is what that's what has happened in South Africa. Mm. White people have lost power, but yeah. they've kept it um, in certain areas of South Africa. For example, they'll have a university like Stellenbosch University, mm. they'll have a university like Northwest Pika, Pochestrom University is Afrikaans. Mm. We know that. University of Pretoria, also very Afrikaans. Mm. So they want to keep that little bit of power that they have and then they attach excellence to mm. that power. Mm. So that that small group of people still comes out of Stellenbosch University. And the minute a person is looking at your CV and sees Stellenbosch University, you're the first one hired. Right. So they reproduce in the system of their elitism and their excellence mm. in the broader South African context. So within the labor market, they've got dominance as well. Why? Because you've kept South Africa, um, Stellenbosch University, this hub of excellence based on its Africanism and it's based on its history. Yeah. And you don't want to change and rename the buildings because, oh my goodness, the minute you call it Charlotte Nkenge, it loses value. Yeah. Bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, they, they need to mourn that loss of power. And I think one of the things that um, white people have not done, white Africans people have not done in this country, is do the white work. You know, mm. Christy Fadovestes speaks about it, that you, you really are reflexive and you think about what it means to be white, what it, me what, what, what it means to fear black people, what does it mean to fear um, losing power. They haven't sat and discussed that. Mm. We are the ones that still need to interrogate them. We're the ones that still need to research white people. We're the ones that still need to give them tips on how not to be racist. Yeah, for sure. 
and that's that's the problem so i, I think it's it's a legitimate claim in terms of you know them wanting some corner of africanism in south africa but they don't understand that black people have also had to assimilate into something that we don't understand as well and that's why we have a month or september well september is coming up as heritage month and heritage month is where you are allowed to be black you're allowed to walk into the classroom wearing his toto and so on which are traditional attires yeah. Um, there's a day, a public holiday that we all have in September for us to be South African or African and you represent your heritage and how you're wearing and you're allowed to speak your language and so on. And that's very violent. And mm. Afrikaans people want to do what? Have an entire year yeah. where they celebrate Afrikaans, where they speak in Afrikaans, where they teach us curriculums in Afrikaans. As if us coming towards us, um, English was almost us meeting in the, in the middle. Yeah. And they're not seeing that. Um, so, yo, man, I think it's such crap. I really have stronger words for it, but I can't. No, you can you can be as strong as you want. I Honestly, mean. it's it's really it's really a mess. It's a mess that white people have not been able to see that in the system of power, they haven't mourned that the power is gone, yeah. and they sit there looking around, pretending as if transformation or equity is oppression. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. Equity and transformation are only oppression to the person who had the most had power. The so they need to understand that you must mourn, you must lose power in order for um, equity to, to take place. That's really interesting because, yeah. you know, I'm, I've always been of the belief for people to alleviate or to give up privilege. There's many people who want things to, to status quo to stay the same because, you know, to give up that privilege, they themselves would be losing something. And of why course. would a lot of these white academics, so to speak, particularly white middle class, why would they want to give up that privilege? You yeah. know, and that's yeah. interesting. And I suppose kind and of... it's surprising that white Afrikaans women... Yeah are not um, part of, lib- if we want to then have intersectional liberation struggles yeah. in South Africa. Because white Afrikaans women were also quite oppressed by white Afrikaans men. Mm. But post-1994, uh, white Afrikaans women haven't sort of seen then the similarities between power in general, because the mm. logics of power function the same. Mm. Yes, you've got genealogies of race, you've got genealogies of gender and so on, but the logics of power are the same. The same yeah. And they just, they just haven't clicked mm. into that. So... Yeah, I think there's a lot of white work that they have to do. What are your thoughts on kind of white allyship? I suppose if I kind of speak from the context of I'm really acutely aware of how privileged I am as a black male Mm. and a lot of what I've tried to do as an ally for black women actually is to be silent and Mm. to give up patriarchal spaces that have historically and traditionally always been occupied by men give up those spaces in favour of better supporting women of colour who have basically paved the way for me to have any kind of opportunity in the first place and done the work Mm. and in terms of that labour it's them that have carried the labour and the con- mm-hmm. and it's been consequential in terms of, you know, professionally, fiscally, reputationally and in terms of mental well-being. So I suppose in terms of white allyship, what are your thoughts on that? Do you believe in the concept of the silent partner? Do you believe in the idea of giving up privilege? What are your thoughts on kind of white allyship mm-hmm. in relation to advancing black plight and helping support black Mm. people unfortunately i'm not one of those people who believes that there's an island or a we can't drive white people to the sea yeah i know that that's a popular narrative in south africa yeah you people are ready for the land to come back totally yeah and we must just have black people only here or whatever it is but 
Is that what you know, a lot of South Africans would want? Black South Africans? Look, there is, you, again, um, you've got different types of um, ideologies or ways that people want to approach freedom yeah. and true transformation. Mm. There are then a group of people, Pan-Africanists, I think the economic freedom uh, fighters as well at the moment, are driving then a particular narrative of drive white people to the sea. We need a clean yeah. Um, unblemished South Africa that mm. doesn't have anyone who came by boat. Yeah. So there's that narrative, but at the same time, um, I'm one of those people that think it's important for us to understand the reality of the situation now. Mm. The situation now is that white people are here. Mm. We can't drive them to the sea. We can't tell them to leave yeah. South Africa altogether, um, because again, they leave us and they leave South Africa and they leave the systems that they've created here. Yeah. So to undo those systems for me. Um, it's, it's too stressful if they're not here to yeah, help us sure. do it um, as well. So I think white allies are necessary because we need intersectional liberation struggles. Mm. Because I'm not at the braai where all the white Afrikaners are sitting together and calling yeah. us kafirs. Yeah, yeah. I'm not there. <laughs> Another white person is there. I'm not at Opikopi. Okay, Opikopi has now become such a... Um, left aligned movement but mm. I'm not at those gatherings that white people have you know mm. they call them prayer yeah, conventions yeah. but they know they're, they're actually trying to put together about what do we do mm. for black people so I think it's important that we've got white people in white spaces mm. that are driving positive narratives and understanding the, the strength of diversity and talking about transformation in those spaces because we don't have access to that social group. Mm. So it's important in that aspect. But I'm also very cautious that white people, when you're working with them, they forget that they're white in that space. Mm. And they forget that they carry a certain amount of power, even silently. Yeah. So if we can get to a point of trusting white people enough and them also also doing the white work, then of course we need to have um, solidarities and alignments with white people. But um, if they come in with the mentality of thinking that they're coming to complete or advance the, the, the discussions and to advance, to advance the discourse around transformation just because I'm including a white space, then that's going to be problematic. Mm. So the politics have to be right. But again, I ask myself, who has then the yardstick of uh, measuring whose politics are right and whose politics are not? So it's a complicated one for me, but I think for the sake of intersectional liberation struggles, which bring together everyone that wants to see then equity-based realities, whether they are based on gender, on race, whatever it is um, it's important for us to then work together or collaboratively to a certain extent that's really interesting to hear i mean i just think in the uk that narrative is very very it's very very nuanced mm. i mean there is a perception that there are actually a lot of white academics that have profited from the plight of black and minority it's ethnic um, disadvantage yeah um and it becomes really interesting because it's hard to decipher you know I guess sometimes people's true intentions in terms mm. of, you know, dismantling that and the whole notion of what racism represents, you know, how, you know, white academics and white mm. people, generally speaking, have benefited from racism historically. And then there's that decolonizing of the mind on, in, in both races. Of course. Um, and it's really interesting. And I suppose um, one of the things I'm really interested in is just kind of thinking about particular types of people in the South African context. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, just say a name to you. I'm going to say a couple of names to you, and I want you to give me your thoughts on those people. Okay. Okay? So, uh, Mira Makiba. Oh, Mama Wei, Tum, Oh, you see now. Okay, English. 
Um, mother of a nation, beautiful, beautiful woman, uh, problematic sometimes because she presented womanhood very closely with uh, motherhood, mm-hmm. which is uh, becomes problematic when you're thinking about uh, where gender is moving towards um, and the types of women and that category of women that we need to have. But, um, oh, amazing, amazing, amazing person. Um, I think someone who's very understudied. Mm. Um, and has been boxed into one thing because that is what women were previously. You were a mother and then you were either a political activist or a musician and so on. Yeah. Um, so it would be great for us to widen the scope of what she can offer besides just the music, in as much as music was healing and also political at the time. Interesting. Mm. Nelson Mandela. Yo. Overburden legacy. Yeah. Um, a legacy that doesn't sometimes make space for true liberation of women. Mm. Um, I'm going to be as bold as to say that we haven't fully discovered whether or not he was a uh, wife beater. Mm. If we think about uh, Evelyn and uh, the struggles that she's been saying, she, yeah. well, she was saying that um, she was having. So, That's Mandela's um, ex ex-wife, former first, first wife. wife. First yeah. one, first wife. Um, so I think also there's something there's something there that we need to discuss. Um, I think also there's an image of Mandela that we've been given. Um, so it would be wonderful to understand the true Mandela. Yeah. Um, his mind was very much his, but his body and his spirit and his characteristics were ours. Yeah, mm. that's very interesting. Uh, Winnie. Yo, Bogoto. Mm. True definition of Mbogoto. Mbogoto being loosely translated as a rock. Yeah. Um, she was the rock on which people leaned on. She was the rock that people threw uh, to whiteness. Um, she was dangled as well as leverage for a lot of uh, people in, in the struggle. Yeah, man, the true definition of a rock. Um, a person who I think has a lot to contribute to feminist scholarship, but has not been given the opportunity to because she's an adjunct of a much bigger legacy. Yeah. Um, so we need to remember her as Unomzamo yeah. Matigizela rather than Winnie Mandela. Yeah, I love that. Hugh Masekela. Yeah, powerful, inspirational. Um, grandfatherly as well i think he represented someone that everyone can uh, relate to he was in my mind someone who helped with mental instability Mm. at the time of apartheid and even further you know just reminding south africa um about its history but in such a a playful way using then um jazz music so yeah jacob zuma womanizer conniving embezzler Look, I don't worry about uh, money anymore and corruption in South Africa because I think everyone's got some skeleton in the closet. Yeah. I don't think we can pretend as if, again, cops don't run after someone who's not problematic. So I think Mandela, as well, to a certain extent, can tell us a few stories about things that they did yeah. to get money, to get out of the country, and yeah. so on. So everyone's got that characteristic when it comes to radicalism. So corruption and embezzlement for me is out of the way. But definitely womanizer, conniving a politician, strategic, but also quite resourceful and important to the history of South Africa. Interesting. And two musical ones, Brenda oh. and Lady Smith, Blackman Vaza. Brenda Farsi for me represents someone who was too advanced for her time when it comes to 
feminist, yeah. African black, African feminist thought. I think that she represented um, protesting using the body yeah. and how we protest gender and protest um, these these um, rigid ideas of what it means to mm. be a woman. So I think at the time, uh, she was just too advanced yeah. and people didn't get the richness of who she oh, is. She is. Um, but you know, she's amazing and I think more studies need to be done on her. Um, What's interesting is people do now she's, she's passed away. That's the thing. Um, but also her body can be an archive. Yeah. Her body can be an archive, a, a source, a reservoir mm. of knowledge as well. Um, dead as it is, uh, the corpse, we can always go back and do a post-mortem yeah. of what it meant to be Brenda and what it means to be a Brenda today. Yeah. Um, and the differences in, in how you accept it. Yeah. Ladies with Black Mambazo, people who really took South African music to the world. Joseph Shabala. Yeah, yeah, I really think um, even when you think about what the sons are doing now, as well, yeah. you know, sort of trying to uh, recreate and keep the idea of Lady Smith alive, mm. it's the heart of South African music. Yeah. And anyone who heard it at the time, as well, could, you, if you close your eyes and you listen to Lady Smith you can hear the trains, you can hear the sounds yeah. of um, authentic. That's what South they say, Africans. all their music and the sounds is motivated by... Yes, by, yeah. yes, so you, you can hear South Africa in their music mm. and I think they've been so brilliant at mm. that. Um, it's just unfortunate that you'll never hear them getting honorary doctorates in music. Why, why, why is that? Because what, what they represent perhaps mm. is not um, something that academia can tick a box and say, yeah. fill out a criteria for to say, yeah. you know, they were brilliant. Mm. So... Markers of excellence, unfortunately, still belong to the privileged. They do, unfortunately. Yeah. No, but I have to say, this is this has probably been one of the best. Well, I mean, I'm filling in for Chantel and Tiso, but um, knowing them as well as I do, they would have loved to have done this. So I feel very privileged to have done it. Is there anything that you want us to finish on? Um, because I just one, I think you're amazing. Two, I think you're in terms of what you kind of... My mum spoke to me a lot about kind of strong, powerful black women mm. and their importance within society and how they lead movements mm. and men often follow and try and take credit for them. But there's a generation of women now that are holding firm and actually holding men to account, particularly mm. men of colour to account, for certain... Mm. That sort of... That labour that needs to be evenly distributed. Mm. And when I look at you, you embody all of the things that my mum brought me up on in terms of what a strong black woman looks like and I just think it's been a privilege to kind of speak to you on this what are your final thoughts? Oh, thank you for all those compliments I'm learning how to take compliments um, <laughs> and I suppose that can be my parting thought um, that I think more recently South Africa has come alive with a cohort of very strong young black academic and non-academic women mm. who um, are fearlessly giving themselves permission to stand out um, South Africa has been riddled with, and again, I don't want to disregard any woman of, um, of who's brought us to this point in South Africa, yeah. any, any woman who's been part of the struggle, but the idea of being associated to a man yeah. has been so prevalent yeah. in the history of the woman that we list. Yeah. Everyone is a missus, Mrs. everyone yeah. is a, a wife of, yeah. mother of, and so on. Um, and I think, I hope that I, I embody and continue to embody the women that are fearlessly standing on their own and yeah. shining their light and giving themselves permission to be seen, to be celebrated, and to be excellent. Yeah. Um, and not being apologetic about that because we don't have 
um, associations with men, um, and that the network of women, even across uh, across the world, can then become stronger. Um, in, in that way. So thank you so much for this opportunity. I think it's important as well for women's voices to be heard and to discuss and for our thoughts to be in demand because it also does something in the psyche of a woman as well to know that um, intellectually you can contribute to anything just purely by existing and purely by being who you are. So thank you. No, no, we thank you. From Port Elizabeth, South Africa, Nelson Mandela University. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Spotlight series. If you're interested in hosting an episode, get in touch.